All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you to the Emerge Conference for letting us host this virtual panel on social justice in the cannabis industry. I am so excited to be joined by my team members from the Last Prisoner Project today for this discussion, and we are going to dive right into it. Um, all right. Well, I did not introduce myself, but my name is Sarah Gersten. I am the executive director and general counsel of The Last Prisoner Project. Uh, and as I mentioned, I am joined here today by three fantastic team members of mine. So first, I would love for you to each introduce yourselves. And Andrew, let's go ahead and start with you. Hi, I'm Andrew D'Angelo. My brother Steve and I are co-founders of Last Prisoner Project. We've also started Harborside, which is a vertically integrated legal cannabis company here in California. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Evelyn. Hi, my name is Evelyn LaChapelle. I am, here's two people, community engagement manager for Vertosa and then also on the advisory board for Last Prisoner Project, one of their um, constituents. Awesome, and Mickey. Hey, uh, my name is Michalina Belina, but people call me Mickey, uh, and I'm the director for criminal justice law and policy at Last Prisoner Project. Great. Well, thank you all so much. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to dive right into it and first kind of give an overview of Last Prisoner Project and the work that we do before kind of zooming out and talking about some of the broader social justice issues within the cannabis industry and cannabis law and policy. Um, so for those of you that may not be familiar with Last Prisoner Project, we are a cannabis criminal justice nonprofit. So we focus on all things at the intersection of cannabis reform and legalization and criminal justice reform. Um, so that's everything from the release of currently incarcerated individuals for cannabis offenses, as well as record relief and expungement, all the way to our reentry services for our constituents coming out of incarceration. Um, beyond those direct services, we are very active in policy reform. Um, we have some scholarship and educational, of course, awareness is a huge piece of what we do. So we'll be diving a little bit more into that work as well. Um, but I would like to start, Andrew, with one of our founders, just giving kind of the background on why you and your co-founders decided to start the organization. Thanks, Sarah. Well, about a year and a half ago is when my brother, Steve, my older brother, Steve, the, the specific vision for Last Prisoner Project belongs to Steve. But, but before that specific vision happened, you know, Steve and I have been in the cannabis trade for 40, 50 years. And um, we've been activists and played a big role in legalizing both medical and adult use cannabis. And during that time, a lot of our brothers and sisters got busted. That's what happens when you're in the trade. And over the years and decades, we had to deal with this problem in a variety of different ways. And when we opened Harborside, we launched a program where patients could write letters to cannabis prisoners and get free medicine in exchange for that. And that's sort of 
we began our connection from the legal industry to our brothers and sisters in prison with that program. Then about a year and a half ago, Steve was hit like a thunderbolt when he was in a conference room with a lot of high net worth individuals talking about starting publicly traded cannabis companies worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, basically doing the same thing that all of our friends and family members had gotten busted for previously. And it felt really something profoundly was wrong, that, that we had a legal industry where people were selling a lot more cannabis manufacturing, distributing than folks that are currently serving hard time in prison. And Steve felt like we needed to do something about that. So that, that was the inspiration for Last Prisoner Project. We, we partnered with Dean Rays and we recruited you and some other great team members. And, and, and now We've got some nice momentum with Last Prisoner Project. Our community and our industry has really stepped up and responded to the call. And I'm very proud of where we're at right now. We are still a little tiny baby of an organization. And we have, you know, many thousands, tens of thousands of constituents that we have to help in the United States. And then when you start thinking about the world, you could imagine a generation or two of work to get all of that done. And, and many, many tens of millions of dollars is going to be needed. And our other panelists can, can dive into the nuts and bolts of how we get people out of prison. But that was the inspiration for, for Last Prisoner Project. And, and so that's where we are today. And, and hopefully we're, we're going to inspire a lot of folks at this panel to jump on board the LPP train and help. Absolutely. And I really love kind of that origin story because it just really highlights um, this moral imperative, right, that we always talk about and I think is so important to discuss today at this Emerge conference with industry leaders. Um, we really feel that anyone that is finding success or profiting in the cannabis industry has a duty to support restorative justice causes um, and I think what part of you know what you and the other founders realized and part of the impetus for starting LPP was that there have been in fact um, a lot of social justice causes that are being championed by legalization um, of course social equity creating an equitable industry um, as well as expungement you know my background being criminal justice I often talk about this because I find it just really interesting and it really showcases how legalization can be a tool to redress some of the issues with our justice system in this country. Um, automatic expungement, which has really become the gold standard in terms of record relief, was really pushed forward and found so much momentum because of legalization and particularly legalization in California. Um, and so those are two issues, equity and um, expungement, that have really been a focal point for this movement. Um, but what was missing, and I think you know what you touched on, Andrew, was that support, that assistance, and any kind of legislative or reform movement for those still incarcerated on cannabis offenses. So that was really key to kind of the need, the problem that we saw that we wanted to address, um, particularly with our release programs. 
And when we started, you know, we did have a very narrow vision, um, hence the name Last Prisoner Project, of wanting to be very singularly focused on that really important goal of ensuring the release of those still incarcerated on cannabis offenses. Um, we've now been doing that work through our clemency program, through our compassionate release program. Um, but I wanna move to Evelyn because I know for myself and the rest of our team, meeting Evelyn really shifted and expanded the focus of the work that we do at Last Prisoner Project. So before we dive into more about our reentry programs, Evelyn, I would love for you to kind of just give the background on sort of where you were at and what you had come through when we met you um, just over a year ago. Absolutely. Um, I would first like to add that having that singular agenda um, is, is applaudable, right? Um, because even going through uh, my experience that I'll share shortly, I had a very singular idea of what it was going to be. It was going to be released from prison and move on with my life. And I thought that that is where it ended. Um, but when I met you all, Andrew, you were there as well. When I met you all almost a year ago, um, I had been released after completing my 87 month sentence as a first time nonviolent cannabis offender. I had served five years in custody was released February the 1st, 2019, and that was it. I was straight and narrow, I'm moving on with life, and this is, this is the end of that. Um, and I was hired at a prominent hotel, and then two months later fired because my, someone did a Google search of my name, Evelyn LaChapelle, and found that I had been involved in a cannabis conspiracy and I was asked to pack up my things and leave from work that very same day. And that happened in April, and I believe it was two months later, uh, or June, July, we met, and I got to come to Harborside, my first time in a dispensary. Um, wow, coming out of prison, of course, for cannabis, walking into such a beautiful dispensary sort of blew my mind for sure. Um, but it was in that conversation, I thought it would be one conversation, I would share my story and move on. But it was in that also for me, as it was for Last Prisoner Project, eye-opening that this process, this experience was A, not over, and this process to re-entry had really just began for me. And it shifted to the way that I viewed my story um, and I am grateful that it shifted the way that Last Prisoner Project attacked uh, reentry. Thank you for that, Evelyn. I do just want to dive a little deeper into, you know, what you were facing because I think it's it's just impossible for those of us that have not experienced incarceration to understand all of the barriers, everything that you were up against when you were coming out. Um, I think we often talk about employability, um, all of the barriers you face to find housing, to get assistance, um, and because we have, again, this, you know, legal focus, we focus on those issues, but when I met you, I think it also really opened my eyes to kind of a deeper problem of coming out and some of the needs that really go beyond sort of, you know, the regulatory reforms that we were working on. Um, when you were incarcerated, 
you had a very young daughter. Your daughter was three. Four. She just four. turned four. Mm-hmm. And so you're coming out and she's now 10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you've, you know, talked about this with me, but if you, you know, feel comfortable sharing just the difficulties of even reintegrating with your own family. Absolutely. It was, it, it continues to be a work in progress for, for us as a, as a unit, as a family. When I was incarcerated, um, it does not just affect the incarcerated. There is a trickle down effect uh, way beyond my own understanding. Um, and so coming home after five years of a long time is really what it is where you're, you know, you're in this cell, you're by yourself and, and you've created and I've created a routine to sort of manage that time effectively, but it's very um, singular. And so coming home, there's expectations on who I am and there's expectations on who my family should be towards me. And so we're, we're missing the mark there. And the system is not set up for a healthy transition. So I'm released to a halfway house. You have two weeks to find employment before you risk uh, receiving an incident report. Um, So within two weeks, you're gonna find obviously the first job that fits your needs. Uh, I was blessed enough to find two waitressing positions that I have kept, one of them currently and um, another one up until COVID. Um, And so not, let me go back. I, before going into prison, college graduate, a career in hospitality, a mother of a four-year-old. And so coming home, wanting to get back to that life was impossible. I have two weeks to find a job. Now I'm a waitress. Now I can only uh, be a mom two hours out of the day for my free time um, hours. And so just transitioning all of that was extremely difficult, continues to be difficult. There is no housing assistance um, for felons, drug felons, for sure. There is um, no voting rights. There is no, there is no, let me hold your hand as you walk out the door and I imagine that there are some who would say you committed a crime, you're a criminal, there needs to not be any handholding. But in the same breath, I, those same voices encourage you to be an outstanding citizen, right? And so if there is not a bridge from incarceration to becoming that citizen, to becoming a healthy member of the community, what are you left with? I never in in a million years imagined that re-entry for me would be difficult. I walked out of those prison doors, never to look back, never concerned, um, would judge the women who were afraid to be released because there's many of women who are afraid to go home because they don't know what they're going home to. And that was not an issue for me. And then I come home and that is an issue for me. Um, tuition for my daughter's school, her extracurricular activities, my housing. I mean, the, the list continues to stack, Sarah. Um, and I know that I've been blessed, but my story is not the story of uh, the average person being released from prison. Be- and, and that's because of Last Prisoner Project for sure. Well, 
Thank you, Evelyn. Um, and of course, that goes both ways because, again, you know, a huge role that you play with us is opening our eyes to these issues. Um, and so, again, you were really critical in us recognizing the need to build out our reentry support so that we could support all of the women um, and everyone coming out that have experienced what you've gone through. Um, and so Mickey, I'm super excited to have you on to be able to follow that up because you have been really integral, um, especially in the past few months of structuring um, and building out our reentry program. So mm -hmm. I would love for you to touch on kind of, you know, the services that you're building out through that for our constituents, but also a piece that I briefly touched on. I'd love for you to go into a, a little more detail um, you'll dive into this, but the goal of that program, one of the goals, is to help create pathways to employment in the industry. Um, you know, Evelyn mentioned she now does work at Bertosa, uh, an infusion company, um, and that's amazing. We're, we want that for every one of our constituents that want to be in the industry, mm -hmm. but even in a place like California, um, which has probably the most progressive reform in terms of allowing that to happen, there are a lot of legal and regulatory barriers for individuals with a record, even if it's just a cannabis offense, to get into the industry. So I gave you a lot there to cover, um, but I would love for you to touch on all of that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I just want to say thank you to Evelyn, because you really kind of laid it up and set the context and the landscape um, in which all of this re these reentry efforts are happening, which is it's an uphill battle, right? Um, like reentry in and of itself, is, it's, it's, a, it's meant to be a losing battle, right? Because folks who are released from incarceration, often the folks that came in, like Evelyn had a lot of privileges compared to most of the folks who find themselves in the legal system, right? And still has all of these collateral consequences and barriers that we're fighting to try and overcome. Most people go in needy and vulnerable and often sick and within poor health. Incarceration makes all of that worse. And then the system lets them out and puts all these conditions and additional burdens on them and additional costs, right? So reentry is set up to try and figure out how to help people rebuild their lives in a system that is designed for them to fail. Um, what we are doing is trying to focus on the employment piece because one thing that research across the board, whether it's data, qualitative, anecdotal, my own experience like working in reentry services on the ground, is that employment is key and critical to successful reentry because what happens post-incarceration, as Evelyn talked about, is most people lose access to housing, right? They don't know where they're sleeping at night. And in order to try and secure housing, you need access to money, which is if you've been incarcerated, you clearly don't have employment. Um, you lost whatever employment you had if you had any. And trying to find a job with a criminal record is increasingly impossible. Um, because first off, think about what it takes to try and get a job, right? First off, you've got the stigma that comes with incarceration. And then you've got all these requirements. You've got possibly probation, parole conditions requirements. You have to try and figure out childcare while also trying to find a job. And so you're trying to juggle all of these things that would be hard for anybody to handle, let alone somebody who's dealing with all of the burdens and collateral consequences that come with incarceration. What employment does is it, one, offers financial security. You need income to survive in America. You need gainful income, right? So that's like 
kind of the critical piece to everything else because you can't do anything without access to capital. And that's arguably one of the biggest things that incarceration prevents um, folks trying to re-enter society. The biggest thing that keeps them from being able to reintegrate is access to capital, access to loans, access to credit, access to employment. So recognizing that, while there's a lot of things that folks coming back into returning citizens, folks coming back from incarceration need, we're focusing at unemployment because of all those reasons, right? Um, and the way we're doing that is right now we're focusing on a mentorship program um, with folks in the industry that have expertise around recruiting, mentorship, resume building, and all the things that it takes in order to succeed and find a job, to find a job and succeed in the cannabis industry. Along with that, we recognize while mentorship is great, uh, ideally that's partnered and coupled with job placement, right? Because again, there's also like a justice and moral imperative component to this. It's not just that this is the right thing to do for to support our fellow, you know, community members to support our like society in general, but also the fact that cannabis is literally creating generational wealth for wealthy white America. It is continuing to cause generational harm and trauma to black and brown communities. And these two things are existing. Um, in what we would like to be a just society, but it, like, it can't be a just society and those two things still exist. So there's a moral imperative piece of this employment thing where if you're in the industry and you're making a profit, like it, it's, it, it just makes sense to bring the folks who have been incarcerated and traumatized for doing the exact same thing into the regulatory fold and not only bring them into the fold, but also to support and sponsor because this is the other piece that we're, we have yet to build out, but we're trying to figure out what the best practices are because they haven't been really figured out yet, which is how do you not just hire impacted folks, but how do you support them? How do you set them up for success? Because what a lot of folks will say, and I've seen this from doing um, re-entry services with street and gang involved um, young adults pr previously to my LPP work, you know, we could get the guy the job, but, and the employer would hire, but then um, the employer wasn't hip to the fact that our guys had probation, parole meetings, and all of these things. And so when the guy had trouble getting to work or was late, five, 10 minutes late every single time, without taking into the context the specific barriers that impacted folks um, encounter, they would just say, that's a, you know, that's a bad employee. They're not, they don't have what it takes. So part of our job at LPP in the reentry piece, not only is it getting the folks the skills, development, um, mentorship and job placement, but also educating the industry on how to be good neighbors, right? How to be good sponsors, how to be good employers of impacted folks. One in three Americans has a criminal record. That is a huge talent pool that we cannot afford to continue to exclude from any industry, but specifically the cannabis industry, given the moral imperatives we've discussed. So this is sort of the bigger piece. It's like, Yes, we need to get the opportunities, we need to give the skills and do all of that, but also we need to come together as a community and figure out how do we take care of each other. And I think that's the that's one of the bridges that LPP that we're really trying to build at reentry with industry partners and with community partners. Absolutely. And like you said, Mickey, it really is an uphill battle. Um, I think a huge misconception that people have on both pieces of this, both the release and the reentry side, is that once a state legalizes, everything gets fixed. We're letting individuals out that are still incarcerated on cannabis offenses. We're creating pathways to employment. Um, and that's not the case. We have no retroactive relief in any state, and of course not federally, for those still incarcerated. And beyond that, 
in states, even states that are creating social equity programs that are ostensibly giving a boost to communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, there are still regulatory barriers for individuals with felonies to participate in the industry. And of course, as we know, as Evelyn knows all too well, you can absolutely receive a felony charge for a very minor cannabis offense. And so there is so much work to do on the policy level, um, you know, despite our best efforts in terms of direct services. Um, so I, I will circle back with you on some of our policy efforts, um, but I want to turn to Andrew. I mean, Andrew, you have been in the weeds, pun intended, um, on so much of this reform around cannabis legalization, particularly in California. Um, and it feels to me as more of an outsider, newer to this industry, that we are really seeing a shift despite, you know, not certainly not having done everything that we need to do to create an equitable industry or a just industry. But it does feel like this has become more of a central focus in terms of reform efforts. Is that how you're feeling having been an activist um, in this movement for decades? Yes, in fact, I'm learning a lot from the social justice and social equity activists that have been beating the drum the last couple of years. I've, they've really moved me to make new commitments and to look at this differently. Look, my tribe that I come from are hippies and growers and burners and creatives and artists and musicians and 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 yeah, there were some people of color in my in my circle when I was trading all that cannabis all those years. But by and large, it, it was people that were freaks like me. Um, <clears throat> what's happened in the last couple of years with these activists is is I've realized the connection um, between and how much we have in common, um, and and how much my privilege protected me in that same trade uh, that that everybody else did not have that, that protection. And it's really opened my mind. Um, and not only, I al we, we always had this commitment to freeing our brothers and sisters in prison. Didn't matter what color your skin is. We, we always had that commitment. But what I've learned from these activists is it's not enough to have commitment. You have to have law, the power of law behind some of this, you know, um, until it is mandated that we create equity until it is mandated that we create ownership. We're, our work's not done. And, and that's why, not just with LPP, but I donate a certain amount of my time to social equity too, uh, because it's, 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 it's our obligation um, to, to make sure, the moral imperative that we've been talking about just right now, I really feel it in every cell of my being, that, that, that moral imperative. And, and I, it bothers me when, when there's big, cannabis companies not doing this work and ignoring it and, and just letting somebody else take care of it. Let someone else be the activist. Let somebody else get the policy right. No, we need everybody to step out. The policy's wrong everywhere. Policy's wrong in California. Legalization's a mess out here. Um, and, and we're actually encouraging more illicit activity than we are in, in our framework. And we have to get it right. And certainly getting people, uh, retroactive release ought to be like easy to get done, but it's enormously hard to get retroactive release 
laws passed. These politicians of both major parties are risk averse. They do not want to do it. They're scared. They're still thinking of Willie Horton and all that. All that lies and, and, and just all that old stuff um, that's in the ecosystem. And, and so that's what I've learned from the social justice and social equity activists, particularly in the last few months. It's really blown my mind apart and renewed my commitments. And certainly our organization learned a lot from Evelyn and just meeting the actual people um, that are affected by this. My brother is a felon. He got busted with 230 pounds a week. It destroyed our family for years and years and years. We were lucky to rebuild. We were lucky we were able to open Harborside. The way we look had a big part of why we were able to do that, okay? And I want everybody else who's been locked up, who has felonies, to be able to do that too. We can create a prison to jobs pipeline. We need the policy to help us and we have to work like crazy to get that policy right because if the policy's right, it makes our job a lot easier. Uh, we can probably go raise the money um, if we work hard enough at it to do the reentry program, but if the policy's wrong and we don't have retroactive relief and it's not easy to do this stuff, um, we, we can't get it done as well. So, so those are, there's like dual tracks we're working on right now. And I'm just so proud of the community because those activists have, have done an amazing job the last year or two. We have definitely seen, I think, a huge shift across the board um, that scales way beyond the cannabis industry to this country really reckoning with all of the flaws, um, you know, the systemic racism that is part of the model of the criminal legal system in this country. Um, and I'm really excited about the work that Last Prisoner Project is doing to really interrogate how legalization and cannabis reform can be a tool to redress um, a lot of those issues. Um, Mickey, you have been, along with the reentry work, um, working on some of this policy. And again, you know, we talk about um, the singular focus that we have when we conceived of the organization um, being focusing on who was still sitting in prison on cannabis offenses. And there are a lot of people and, you know, uh, Evelyn's co-defendant, one of our um, other board members, Corvain Cooper, is serving a life sentence. So there absolutely are hundreds of people in the U.S. serving decades long or life sentences for nonviolent cannabis offenses. Um, but that is just one piece of a really huge pie. Um, there are so many ways that the criminalization of cannabis has lasting ramifications, particularly on our communities of color. Um, Mickey, could you kind of talk about that scholarship that you're working on that sort of goes beyond um, just the numbers of who is incarcerated in our prison system? Yeah, for sure. And you can probably see me like getting excited about to like nerd out because it's just, it's like one of those things like when you see clearly and you're like just trying to get everybody else to see see what's real right and impact the community you see it it's governments and the folks doing the research and the folks doing the reporting that aren't um seeing the bigger picture so one of the biggest responses um i mean we get when we talk to folks about decarceration of cannabis prisoners or when i talk even with my fellow like criminal justice 
um, reform colleagues uh, because I worked in the non-cannabis specific criminal justice space prior to this. And so I still talk about work with them, right? And a lot of folks will say, you know, cannabis is being on the way to being legalized, like it's already been legalized. It's not really an issue anymore, right? Um, this is what sort of what the academics and I think the policymakers and the decision makers um, will say because they'll point to the data and say in the grand scheme of things, like the number of like the 40,000 odd folks we have incarcerated on campus offenses, like that's a small number when you take into account the full, uh, what are the 2.3 behind bars and the 4.4 on probation parole, right? The larger carceral system, that's a small number and it's not worthwhile to focus on that. That's just, a, it's a false narrative, but that's the narrative that's out there and that's the operating narrative in regards to how cannabis reform and criminal justice reform have been siloed into these separate spheres. The reality is, if you talk to anybody who's impacted by the legal system, they will tell you that cannabis is the number one tool that the legal system uses to pull people in, even if it's not what keeps them there. I mentioned earlier, I did street and gang violence work before. These are guys that are trying to re-enter uh, and reintegrate into society after having gun and gun-related offenses, shooting offenses, et cetera. Doing everything to rebuild their lives right, they haven't been in the streets or anything, but the way that the cops were able to continue pulling them in and putting them behind bars, regardless, just because they thought that they were bad guys and didn't want to see them try and rebuild, they used cannabis, like guys would have, you know, and we were in a state where it was legal, it was legalized. That didn't mean anything for poor and poor black and brown communities. Like I was living in a state and in a city where my white friends could use openly carry, openly carry up to an ounce, whatever. Meanwhile, I had loved ones being put behind bars for who knows how long, because folks don't really care once you're in a jail cell for personal use, for something like a couple of grams because they were on probation or parole, or because honestly, if you're somebody that the cops want to arrest and put behind bars with no questions asked, that can happen because people will do it and ask questions later because you have a record already or because you look like a danger to society or you're in the wrong part of town or whatever reason they want to use. Cannabis allows them to do it. Um, the ACLU puts out a great report, recently just put out this report that confirmed that um, despite changes in conversation and rhetoric and public opinion on cannabis, um, you know, black people are still 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis, despite the fact that it's equally great rates of usage across the board, right, across races. Additionally, we still have marijuana possession or marijuana arrests outnumbering all arrests for violent crimes, right? And this is according to FBI data. So it's probably even worse than that because they don't like to report data that makes us make systems look bad. And then if you take into account of what majority of the arrests for those cannabis offenses are for possession, not even for selling or distribution. So this, when you start to piece all these things together, you see that, you know, the numbers of how many, you know, official cannabis folks we have behind bars just doesn't tell the whole story. And not for nothing, as somebody I used to do data and research work um, at the local and state level, state and local data is terrible. Most likely the folks that are actually showing up in those data sets are a very limited amount of cannabis related offenses. It's the folks where the only thing on their thing, on their record or on that what they were charged for with was cannabis. If it was cannabis plus something else or cannabis was the thing that pulled them in and then they found something else to make it stick, those folks won't show up. So when you start, you know, piecing all this together, you see cannabis prohibition is still very much a thing that is restricting the freedom of black and brown folks. Like I always say legalization is about making black and brown folks freer because a world where police cannot intervene, approach, 
or anything for cannabis is a place is a world where black and brown folks will be freer because they will be free from that constant threat that is just very much alive and well like i'm in bedside brooklyn i see it literally every single day and quarantine made things worse to be honest um so um, lpp is like I joined LPP because I saw the vision that LPP had, which is there's a gap in the way that we're doing um, cannabis reform and criminal justice reform. Cannabis reform is something that I think criminal justice advocates should be rallying around because to take marijuana out of the criminal sphere will be a critical hit to the systems that allow mass incarceration to be perpetuated. Given that the war on drugs and those systems are what got us here, we should be focusing on dismantling that entirely. Um, and LPP is the only, or not the only, but is a major uh, advocate for this in the space and doing a really great job of raising up this rhetoric. We've got a policy paper coming out that I see as sort of a major knowledge production um, that, that I think is going to be really helpful to one, showing and connecting the dots that I just talked about in a more fleshed out, academic, legitimate, rigorous way. And then additionally, hopefully this brings more folks to the table um to want to collaborate and figure out how do we all block in the same direction for the same vision that we're all fighting for just in all, in our little silos right um yeah so that's why uh, hopefully i didn't nerd out too much but that's a bit about our policy efforts and vision not at all um and we are very excited about the policy paper for all the reasons mickey articulated i think it's also just such a critical moment in this nation um, for both legalization and criminal justice reform. And, you know, as Mickey just said so eloquently, those two conversations should not be siloed. They are, you know, one and the same um, when it comes to redressing our, the systemic problems with our justice system. Um, we are close to a really historic vote in Congress on legalization at the same time that um, states around the country, as well as, um, you know, our federal Congress and federal lawmakers are looking at ways that we can um, reimagine our justice system, reimagine law enforcement in this country. And so what I um, have found really insightful and interesting about this policy paper is it really takes a deep dive into the history of the war on drugs, as well as prohibition and these laws and how there is a direct through line from the implementation of these laws to the way that policing in America looks today. Um, the militarization of law enforcement, um, things like the no-knock warrant that led to Breonna Taylor's death. Um, we can draw that line from war on drugs and prohibitionist policies to the way that law enforcement interacts with black and brown communities today. Um, so it is such an important piece of scholarship. I'm really proud of the team um, for putting this out again at this really critical juncture. Um, that's out this week. You can check that out at uh, www.criminal-injustice.com. And of course, if you go to our website, lastprisonerproject.org. Um, you can find it there and all of our scholarship and research policy work as well. Um, we are coming up on close to the end of our time on this panel um, and we've talked a lot about the problem and the work that needs to be done um, to get us to a place where this industry is doing what it needs to do to create a, a just and equitable industry but also a just and equitable society. Um, but so I do wanna come back to you, Evelyn, because you are our success story. You know, you are kind of the hope 
for everyone that is in the position that you were in, you know, two years ago, you have been able to come out from this incredibly traumatic, devastating experience of being incarcerated for seven years um, to now finding success in the cannabis industry. I would love to end on a high note and have you just talk about um, the work that you've done at Vertosa, getting into the industry and the future and the hope that you see for this industry. Um, absolutely. Uh, the future and the hope that I see for this industry is really uh, is what is driving me in this industry and, and why I love it so much. Um, it's like what Andrew said, it's, it's, it is the industry recognizing that they have and have had the complexion for the protection is what we called it. Um, and I think once, once the industry recognizes that as a whole, um, that it, and that it was built on our black and brown lives, um, then we're able to move forward and progress. And so I see that happening and I see uh, a lot of the major brands stepping forward. I am uh, now on the leadership team of an organization called Cannabis for Black Lives. And it encourages and, and is encouraging all of the major brands to just take a part in the uplifting of those of us who want to be and who have already entered the industry but we don't have the same capital. We don't have the same access to investors. Um, and so asking everyone to step in and do their part in that. And so um, I think that's number one. I'm also doing the Heart of Cannabis every Thursday. Vertosa has given me a platform to create my own space, um, the Heart of Cannabis, where I really want to see uh, cannabis consumption normalized because I think part of decriminalizing cannabis will have to do with us all taking a broader look at how we consume and why do we still have consumption happening behind closed doors. Um, and so that's, that's definitely at the forefront of my agenda. And I, I am a success story. I live in my blessings daily, but it is still continues to be a struggle. Um, and, and so I don't want to take away from the struggles of living in, living in this, this situation. Um, two years out, I'm just now getting housing. I'm just now getting a place for me and my daughter. So it is a continuous struggle that I, that I live, but I count my blessings. And I am appreciative that I am the success story and hoping to pull those that are behind me forward with me. Um, there's so many barriers. I am on probation. And so there's so many restrictions that come with that. Um, traveling in general, I am the community engagement manager and pre-COVID, that meant that I got to come to these conferences in person and manage that. Um, and so traveling, just getting a permission to travel as an adult, having to ask for permission to travel um, is really disheartening and limits your access to a lot of employment opportunities. And so as I am the success story, I encourage everyone to know that um, success is relative and that uh, my success is still not equal to those who are without felons. And um, I encourage everyone to get involved and to push this mission forward um, because there's still 40,000 people incarcerated right now, 40,000 people. And like uh, Mickey said, that, that seems like a small number, but it is not when you are thinking that the same plant 
was um, named essential during a global pandemic. So to know that I still have a co-defendant serving life and that there's still 40,000 people like me serving time in prison for a plant that you all consume um, legally, we need to do something. And I appreciate all of you who have already done something and encourage if you haven't to get involved. There's so many ways, starting with Last Prisoner Project. Well, I think that is an incredible message to end on. I want to say thank you so much to all of our panelists. Um, you guys are amazing. I'm a little biased, but um, I want to also thank the Emerge Conference for having us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.